0: Our passage today is going to be on Ezekiel 36, to 32. And like I said, when the choir sang about hallelujah, what a wonderful name it is, um, that's very true. But as you will see in our text, it wasn't something that Israel totally embraced all the time. So in light of that, let me pray. Heavenly Father... As we come to the close of another year, we are reminded that there is still so much turmoil, suffering, pain, and even death that exists all around us. And Lord, we are also aware that during this Christmas season, many of your people struggle and are often overwhelmed by the stresses and expectations that our world places upon all of us. But Lord, because of you and all that you are and all that you promise, we can have assurance that in you and the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, there is comfort and a peace that does surpass all understanding. Father, help us to embrace the truth that even in our times of struggle, your promises can be trusted. And that when you tell us that you are the light of the world and that the darkness cannot overcome your light, that we trust in this truth. And so, Father, today I pray that you use me as a means for communicating this truth to your people in order that they may know your glory in all they do and experience. And I ask these things in the name of your most blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said, the scripture passage today is from Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-two to 32 And it's a pretty convicting passage. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves from your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. See what I mean? (laughs) So New Year's is just a couple of days away And many of us will likely be making New Year's resolutions Well, I don't know about you, but I was never really a big fan of New Year's resolutions I always thought it seemed sort of arbitrary to decide that I was going to do something Just because a particular day on the calendar showed up It just seemed so random to me Now, just in case you people were not aware, I'm a total cynic. (laughs) I'm skeptical of just about everything. And so if you combine that with the fact that I have spent the bulk of my professional life in the marketing world, which means that I have basically profited on the manipulation and the exploitation of, well, all of you fine people. And you might begin to understand why these types of faux, man-conceived practices hold very little credibility for me. I really do think they're all pretty silly. I mean, let's be realistic. What's so special about January 1, other than it may be a way for the IRS to mark how they decide to pursue their wonderful fiscal endeavors against all of us? And of course, January first was my mom's birthday. But other than that, It's just like any other day. So in light of that, let me ask you a question. If you do happen to participate in this annual exercise, exactly how long does it take you before you totally throw in the towel and give up on every single one of your resolutions? Six months? Six weeks? This isn't participation, remember? (laughs) Six days? Or are you one of those people who makes a resolution and never even bothers to start? I actually have more respect for those of you who do this rather than if you had begun and just bailed on it. At least you have fully embraced the senselessness of this activity. So what's my point in beating everybody else up on, everybody up on this? Well, unlike all of us, when God makes a promise, he actually does keep it. It's the one thing in this life that is truly reliable. If God says, I will do something, rest assured, it's going to get done. And so here in Ezekiel 36, we see that God is annoyingly persistent and insistent in his relentless declarations that if anything is going to get done right, he's going to have to do it himself. Now, I know you've heard both Jeff and myself point out this particular exegetical concern that appears right here at the beginning of our text. And that is, if a passage begins with a therefore, then you absolutely have to ask, what is it therefore? And this is no different. God, through Ezekiel, begins by unloading some pretty weighty and convicting propositions. He's telling the house of Israel that he's about to do some very significant stuff. And these things that he is going to do are in direct response to what Israel has done. And God's not happy. So when we step back and we investigate what the therefore is there for, we quickly see that God's actions are because of the stupid, arrogant, self-serving, and quite amazingly ungrateful actions of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 16-21 The preceding passage tells us exactly why God is so ticked off at Israel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came." God punishes Israel because of their disobedience. They defiled the land that he so graciously gave to, him, gave to them by shedding blood and creating false idols. So in his anger, he disperses them among the nations. But even in this, they don't get the error of their ways. Rather, while they're dispersed, they go about telling everybody that they come in contact with just how horrible their God is. Their words against these people, against God, must have been awfully bad because even the pagans come back and say, God threw you out of your own land? <laughs> You've got to know it's pretty bad when the bad people are telling you just how bad you are. So we pick up now at our passage for this morning. And it's pretty clear that the pagan nations were onto something and that God had just about had it with Israel. And with even more strong words, he lets them know he is about to act. What's more, he tells them right up front that he's not doing this for them. Whatever he is about to do is for the sole purpose of vindicating his holy name, precisely because Israel did such a bang-up job of profaning it in the first place. I read this and I just scratch my head. I'm in awe, and all I can think of is that Israel has really stepped in it this time. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if I'm in Israel's shoes, I'm trying to find the fastest way out of dodge and get as far away from God as I possibly can get. If past evidence gives us any indication concerning what's about to happen, I'm not hanging around to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. Verse 23 doesn't pull any punches. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I don't know about any of you, but if I'm Israel, I'm out of here. Now, none of you people had the pleasure of knowing my father. But if I could show you a picture of him, Especially a picture of him in his Navy uniform, you would immediately know that this was a guy that you did not want to mess with. He had this stern and imposing look about him. It just never seemed to go away. I have a set of pictures that's three, in a series of three pictures, and it sat in my parents' living room for as long as I can remember. And it's a picture of him. The first one is him as an an enlisted man. The second one is him when he made chief. And the third one is him when he made officer, he made a lieutenant. And I remember at a a family gathering, someone made the comment, he's like, he's not smiling in any of these pictures. At which point, my father, who was there, abruptly did an about face and said, what are you talking about? I'm smiling in every single one of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny story. But it doesn't change the reality that my dad was a strict disciplinarian. He looked like that all the time. And you simply didn't want to be on the receiving end of his wrath. Now, please don't understand, misunderstand. He was not abusive. He never mistreated me or my brother or sister or my mom. But you always knew where you stood with him. And he had high standards for all of his children. And you never wanted to disappoint him. He was one of those people who didn't even have to raise a finger or even his voice for you to understand his displeasure. He could simply look at you, and you would immediately have trouble standing up. With one glance, you would know that he was not pleased. And this is exactly how I would envision God in this little scenario with the people of Israel concerning their lack of obedience and the distaste and disdain that their Heavenly Father has for them in this moment of their wrath engendering rebellious attitudes and actions. So not unlike my dad, when presented with clear disobedience, we fully expect God to give that look to his people in order that they may they are made painfully aware of the severity of their transgressions and the just penalty that they are about to receive as a result. And as we might expect, God follows this exact pattern, and he justifiably unloads his righteous wrath on the house of Israel. And so when we pick up where we left off in verses 24 through 30, we naturally expect to read about all the horrible things that God is going to do to his people to vindicate his holy name. But is this what happens? Let me read, starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. Then you, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. What did you just say? I'm confused. I thought you were going to hammer us because of our disobedience. Did we hear you right? Did you just say that because of our blatant disobedience and our profaning of your holy name, that you are now going to bring us back into our own land? and take away all our uncleanness, and that you're going to take our wicked hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh, and then you're going to put your spirit into us in order that we may be able to be obedient to you? Are you sure you're all right? You are God, right? The God of justice and righteousness, the God of all creation who has given to us your holy law, your commands that you personally handed down to Moses at Sinai. The commands you expect all of us to keep perfectly. This is you, right? Now you may think I'm being a bit sarcastic, and I am. But this is what God does throughout his revealed word. He lays down the law and Israel and us continually break it. And then we think when he's finally had enough, we expect God to act just as if he was of this world, forgetting that he is not of this world. Jesus himself states this truth in response to Pilate in John 18. Pilate says first to Jesus, Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. God's truth is so antithetical to our worldly understanding that even when allegedly legitimate, responsible authority structures attempt to understand Jesus or gospel events, they always approach, more or more accurately, attack these events from a secular standpoint. They always view what is not of this world through the lens of this world. So, while I was in the process of putting this sermon together, over this past week. As Paul once said, I do the very thing that I hate. And I fall for this almost every single time. So I'm surfing through this screen on the TV, through the TV Guide listings. And I see that CNN is running its annual back-to-back shows on the historical Jesus. I'm sucked in. I'm sure some of you have seen these. I have hope. Call me an idiot. And let me just point out, they are shows, not documentaries, as much as CNN would want us to believe otherwise. So I'm masochistically suffering through this CNN series, which is nothing more than a preponderance of misguided insinuation and speculation. Oh, sure, they try to position their presentation in a way that sort of sounds like they have respect for biblical and theological truth claims. But their agenda is not easily hidden. They insinuate, no, they actually do say that Jesus must have been a bad person in relation to his family and society because he left home at age 30 and did a walkabout. They actually did say walkabout. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody must have been doing something on Australia. Who knows? (laughs) And they contend that because he did this, while his family needed their assistance and support, that he was clearly irresponsible and uncaring. The implication being, how could someone who was supposed to be a loving and compassionate savior act in such a selfish and irresponsible way? I could go on, but you get the idea. You see, the problem in all these ham-handed attempts to understand God is that they all want to conform our creator to our own narrow understanding of what we believe is valid and true. Ignoring the truth that Scripture tells us that everything we do has been tainted by our sin and thus subject to some sort of -of out-of-whack understanding of everything. We are continually trying to apply worldly principles to understanding things that are quite clearly not of this world. This is what a fallen sinful world looks like in our everyday lives. It is what Scripture warns us about as lethal to our standing before God. These irresponsible attempts to restrict the God of all creation to our limited boundaries of understanding are most insidious because they appear to be genuinely well-intentioned, but are actually positioned to elevate worldly thinking against and above what Scripture tells us is reliable but true. The crux of the problem is no different than what St. Anselm uttered when he said the Latin words, creda ut intelligam, which means, I believe that I might understand. And this reality is exactly what is in view here in our text today. We read that a disobedient and rebellious people are rescued in spite of themselves and their misguided worldly thinking and expectations for how they are to live even when their God has continually explained it to them, both in his promises and his actions. But they are nevertheless incapable of doing what God expects of them until he quite literally steps in. He intercedes on their behalf and changes them so that they may now be able to believe, follow, and obey. And just as Anselm rightly orders... God had to enable Israel to believe by giving to them a new heart and putting his spirit into them before they could see his glory and truth. The text here is clear. This is all God's doing, and it completely contradicts everything we in this world think makes sense, and most importantly, think is fair and just. This is a foreshadowing of the new covenant. It is God literally unveiling how he is going to supersede the old covenant and replace it with the new covenant in Christ. Our living church passage this morning, Hebrews 6, um, Hebrews 8, 6 to 13, which I so abruptly superseded over Romans 9, details this exact willful intention of God. Verses 6 through 9 state, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its effectual grace and glory and love. And the world hates it because it wrestles all power and authority away from us and places it entirely in the hands of our creator God, our Savior Jesus Christ, the object and perfecter of our faith. Is the gospel the sole source of our salvation? Yes. Is it reliable and true? Yes. Is it upside down and counterintuitive to our worldly understanding? Yes. Is it offensive to a fallen, sinful world? Absolutely. But let me ask you one more question. Is the gospel, as we see here in Ezekiel 36, uplifting? Well, in its final and ultimate purpose, yes, it is. But as with so much of God's revealed word, things are not always as clear and as simple as they may first appear. Is the good news of the gospel the announcement that God in Christ saves sinners and will one day make all things new first about our salvation? Well, hold on to yourselves, because this may come as a shock to some Christians, but the gospel is not first about us. Its primary purpose and function is to bring all glory and honor to our creator, God. Now, Jeff, a few weeks ago, introduced the term literary device called an inclusio. And I'm going to use it again. Um, it simply means that a pericope, there's a new one, huh? So a pericope means just a, a passage, a piece of text that has one sort of central focused meaning. And an inclusio is something that's stated at the beginning and the end of that text, sort of to, like, tells you what's going on up front, reiterates it at the end. Ezekiel 36, is a perfect example of this. Verse 22 states, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And you drop down to 32. God, through Ezekiel, repeats his prime directive, just so we get the point of why he's doing what he's doing. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares God. Let that be known to you. And even this verse is again sandwiched between how he wants us to respond to his main proposition. In literary terms, I like to call it an inclusio within an inclusio. Verse 31 hits us right where it hurts. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. And then in the second half of verse 32, which is the conclusion of this passage, he wraps everything up in a most convicting declaration. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So while we do see the gospel in full view here, this Old Testament prophetic witness, It must be understood that in order to fully embrace the good news of Christ crucified and all that this entails for a believer standing before God, the gospel is intended to first drive us to our knees in humiliation and submission to God our Father. The gospel is Christ crucified. It is the cross, the cross that demonstrates to us our Lord's humiliation and death for the sin of all mankind. But in order to embrace the cross and fully grasp the mind-blowing, gracious love that God exhibits in the sacrificial gift of his only Son, we must first understand the gravity and severity of our rebellious, sinful condition before our Creator and the futility of our ineffectual worldly efforts to save ourselves. You may have heard it said that the cross of Christ crucified is displayed vividly in all its divine redemptive power in the New Testament, and that in the Old Testament, it's present but veiled. And here in Ezekiel 36, I think we see a perfect example of this. But not unlike Pilate in his questioning of Jesus or the people at CNN who contribute their own misguided picture of how we are to understand God and his redemptive mission in Christ, We too, as Christians, have unfortunately become influenced by the world and how we understand our Savior. Our contemporary culture has only made our ability to recognize God's glory as demonstrated in scripture more challenging. We are so captivated by the need for forensic proofs and mesmerized by images, both still and moving, that we have lost our ability to engage God's word in a manner in which our Lord intended. We want perfect descriptions that draw easily recognizable pictures and parallels. But God, in his infinite wisdom, intends for us to work with his word. It is not a mistake that our Heavenly Father revealed his purpose to us in words. What's more, the word itself is divine. The opening of John's Gospel makes this very clear. And I would argue that the reason our fallen world has become so enamored and mesmerized by image is because it is in direct conflict with how God requires that we understand him. So here's what I was thinking of. During the discipleship hour, out of the mouths of babes today, Nathan, Steve and uh, Daniela's son, asked the best question of the class. And it had to do with words and how we understand what words mean. And I won't go into the details, but that's exactly what I'm talking about here, is that words do have meaning. And there's a reason why God presented his truth to us in words. I digress. Contemporary theologian and writer Tony Renke describes this exact issue in his recent book, Competing Spectacles, which is really good, by the way. Um, You should pick it up, and it's not very long. He says, at Calvary, Satan triumphed visibly, but Christ triumphed invisibly. This is why Bible movies and cinematic recreations of the cross add nothing to the spectacle of the cross, and too often take away from it, leaving us with graphic imagery of a man's defeat and physical torture, but deflating the spectacle of its most striking glories. Unable to depict, for the screen, Christ's divinity for his unique work as atoning priest, wrath-bearing savior, Passover lamb, crushed servant, serpent smasher, cosmic warrior, forerunner of the second exodus, and alpha of the new creation. Our world says that seeing is believing, but for us to behold the deep glory of the cross, we must see God see as God sees rather than as man sees. We treasure what is invisible, and that is perhaps the greatest source of the spectacle tension in this age and of the Christian life. The great spectacle of Christ crucified is a spectacle for the ear, not a spectacle for the eye. For faith comes not by seeing, but by hearing. It can be challenging to decipher what God wants us to take away from what he is saying to us in this text today. And when we finally do grasp the message, it doesn't really sound like something that we want to hear, particularly because it flies in the face of our worldly preconceptions of how we think God's love is supposed to work. But it's most important that we, as God's people, understand this message, that we are rebellious sinners who have been given everything and have still turned away from our creator, the giver of all life in his gracious love and that we have looked to everything in this corrupt world, which is incidentally corrupt because we made it that way because of our sin emanating from our own hearts, all in an effort to live according to our own understanding and to please ourselves at the expense of others and, most sadly, God. This is the reality of our sinful condition. We need to first realize that the reason God chose any of us should not be embraced as some special badge of honor, but rather should be understood more as a scarlet letter of sorts. God's choosing is actually, in spite of us, an order that he receives all the glory and elevates his holy name above all things, particularly us. And in doing this, we are to be humbled, humiliated before him. God's intention, as presented in verse 32, is to make us ashamed of all that we have done in our desire to please ourselves and be our own little gods. And while this sounds harsh and unloving, it is the means that God uses to bring us back to himself. This is God showing us that he is God and we are not. We must die to ourselves in order to be made alive in Christ. God loves his people, loves us so much that he promises to save us from ourselves against all our better worldly judgment. And it is in his grace and his love alone through the redemptive gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, that we have any hope of walking in eternal joy with Him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, You are our King and our God. But too often we do profane Your holy name. Even as saved Christians, we're disobedient. We continually fall off the rails in going against you and all the things that you have not only taught us but require of us. We praise the gift of your Son on one hand and then out of the same mouth we curse people. Father, forgive us. Help us to see the error of our ways. But most importantly, Lord, help us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ in knowing that even in our sin you have so graciously condescended down to us in the flesh so that you could save us from ourselves. Father, help us to be better servants. Help us to be more faithful to your word. Help us to be more obedient and to love one another as you first loved us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. (laughs)